Hello everyone, this is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to This Week in FCPA, episode 62 for the week ending July 21st, 2017, The Kids Are Back edition. This week, Jay and I return for a wide-ranging discussion of some of the week's top compliance and ethics-related stories, including the following. Will Canada approve DPAs for use in anti-corruption prosecutions? TI Canada recommends they come into use. We take a look at the FCPA mid-year uh, report by the Stanford Law School and an article that uh, discusses it in the Wall Street Journal. The, with the departure of Walter Schaub and from the U.S. Government, Office of Government Ethics and Wei Chin from the Compliance Council, who will lead U.S. ethics and compliance efforts? We take a look at Jacqueline Jager's article in Compliance Week and <clears throat> the business response to this issue. We ask, are Mexico's anti-corruption efforts moving forward or not? We take a look at two articles, uh, one pro that they're moving forward and one anti that they're uh, moving backward, actually. We discuss uh, the uh, Haitian Telecom executive uh, who pled guilty this week, as Dick Casson reported in the FCBA blog. Also, Dimitri Hader is jailed for five years for FCPA offenses, also reported by Dick Casson in the FCPA blog. Jay's twins are back from summer camp, so we talk about what it means for the Rosen household. And finally, Jay previews his weekend report, and we talk about the uh, issues discussed in Everything Compliance, episode 14, which is out. It was uh, released yesterday. So take a look at uh, Everything Compliance for a roundtable discussion by some of the top commentators in compliance. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist, back with Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitors, for another episode of This Week in FCPA. This is episode 62 for the week ending July 21st, 2017, the Kids Are Back in Town edition. Uh, Jay, uh, even in the kind of the doldrums of summer, we had quite a bit of activity this week uh, in the greater ethics and compliance world. So why don't we just hop right into it? There was an article or about a report from Transparency International that recommended Canada uh, join a, glo- a, a growing global movement towards the adopting deferred prosecution agreements for uh, dealing with corporate crime. You want to tell us a little about that? Sure. So um, basically, uh, they said uh, in this TI report that came out on July 12th, they said uh, using DPAs could increase transparency in resolving corporate crime and lead to more voluntary disclosures of wrongdoing by companies. So uh, I would say that the report kind of follows the trend that we've been seeing over the past several years, Uh, first of all, with the uh, UK Bribery Act and the SFO adopting DPAs. Uh, DPAs are currently used in uh, Australia as well. And it seems now that uh, we're going to talk about today that both uh, to the north in Canada and to the south in Mexico, that they are looking at uh, enhancing uh, their ethics and compliance uh, prosecutions and using the DPA as a tool. Um, what's interesting is still the issue that here in the U.S., um, we really do not have much judicial involvement in the DPA, that the DPA is usually a tool that's used uh, for a negotiated settlement, uh, primarily between the Department of Justice 
and directly with the company. And there was a story that we spoke about last week and uh, about whether or not even monitoring reports should be made public as part of a DPA or an NPA. So I think the, um, you know, the sum total here is that this is going to be something good for Canada. Uh, there's also an interview that I read earlier this week that we can make available in the show notes where um, uh, Global uh, GIR uh, had an interview with the head of the RCMP, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. And in this uh, long interview, they also speak about, you know, that they want to get on board with the DPA. So I I think it's a positive uh, you know, it's a positive uh, movement here, and I think uh, it's really bringing Canada online with uh, the trend that's been happening over the last three to four years in terms of resolving uh, corporate FCPA violations. Yeah, I guess uh, I had a couple of observations, Jay. The first is that the uh, Canadian uh, proposal uh, looks like, uh, or at least TI proposed that there be proper safeguards, which would mean that DPAs would cl- include at least three key elements, including financial reparations, sincere compliance reform, and accountability for individual wrongdoers. Uh, under the United States system, we certainly have parts one and two, uh, which would equate to uh, profit disgorgement and remediation of your compliance program. On the, the prong three, accountability of individual wrongdoers, it's not something we've seen the, D, uh, the Department of Justice really move forward on. And uh, as we noted in uh, the Everything Compliance podcast, episode 14, that we uh, uh, are going to mention in this podcast, but which was posted yesterday uh, in uh, Jesse Eisinger, Eisinger's book, The Chicken Shit Club, there was a, a pretty uh, robust critique of the U.S. government not going after white-collar criminals uh uh, generally, and certainly we have not seen that uh, in the um, even in the light of the Yates memo around um, FCPA prosecutions. And the other thing is that uh, now we've got obviously we have the SFO uh, British experience, and now we have this uh, uh, Canadian proposal uh, that seems to be moving forward. And I think that uh, other countries have taken some of the best aspects of the US DPA. Uh, system and have moved uh, to incorporate that into their country's anti-corruption efforts. And perhaps uh, the uh, United States legislature in the form of Congress would uh, take the uh, words of, uh, at least thoughts of, of Judge Poole from the Second Circuit who concurred in the uh, HSBC decision denying the uh, release of the monitor's report, even a redacted version, and take up this issue and pass some legislation which would guide both the Department of Justice courts, uh, district courts, and the parties in what parts of DPAs would have court oversight. And that seems to be something that uh, other countries have uh, recognized as uh, within their interest to have that, uh, even if that's not recognized here in the United States. Um, Yeah, so so I would agree. It's definitely a a growing trend, and it'll be interesting to see how this uh, progresses over the second half of the year. Uh, today in the Wall Street Journal, I thought was an excellent report, a mid-year FCPA uh, enforcement report from the uh, Stanford Law School. Uh, they have a fabulous FCPA uh, site, which is free and available, and they do, I think, some of the best uh, analysis of FCPA cases around, and certainly in the blogosphere world, 
Uh, they put up the most information about FCPA enforcement actions summarized. Uh, law firms put out great reports, too, but in the blogging world, I think uh, uh, the uh, Stanford Law School site is, is uh, certainly one of the best. And uh, their article today um, uh, talked about some of the actions, or, or you, you would probably call it non-action, Jay, but nevertheless, I thought highlighted uh, some some you know what happened this year and between January 1 and June 30 the SEC initiated enforcement actions against four entities and two individuals the DOJ initiated FCPA enforcement actions against five entities and two individuals uh, and added FCPA claims to an existing action against one individuals uh, individual uh, obviously we had the uh, the two declinations uh, last month but there were a couple of specific pieces of information that I found very interesting, Jay. Um, the first was that uh, the gap between the adding of the enforcement actions against uh, Michael Cohen and Vanya Barros in connection with the Ziff bribery scandal up until the uh, Lindy Gas declination was a 140-day gap. And that is the second longest gap in modern post-2005 FCPA enforcement. So um, uh, when you think about uh, length of time, that obviously is a, is a long time. But the, uh, uh, the stretch, they had a great little chart which so, showed the top five stretches. It's, uh, as, as I indicated, number two. And they gave really three reasons that... Um, uh, this may not be uh, as significant as it would appear at first blush. Um, the first is that uh, although the stretch um, uh, is the second longest, it's, it is it's only that. It is between, uh, or rather at the start of a new administration, and that um, not all, all of the key leadership positions in both the SEC and the Department of Justice have been filled. So that, that could be one reason. Uh, that things have slowed down. Second, clearly a lull in new filings or settlements, rather, does not mean that all FCPA-related enforcement activity has come to the halt. Come to a halt. In fact, much of the activity is probably continuing on behind the scenes. Dick Casson, uh, I think, and others have reported that between uh, uh, or up to 100 cases are under active investigation, and the Stanford Law. Uh, uh, Journal or law uh, school reports that 70 uh, companies have disclosed an ongoing FCPA uh, investigation um, as well. So there appears to be lots of activity, um, and of course they they noted the uh, the words of uh, Attorney General Session and and Trevor McFadden, the acting principal deputy assistant, uh, confirming the government's uh, commitment to continued enforcement of the FCPA. So a very interesting report. We've linked to it in the show notes. I uh, urge you to, to take a look at it. Any thoughts from the West Coast? Uh, yeah, you know, you, you, you called it. I'm uh, a bit of a chicken little this year in terms of the sky is falling and nothing's happening from an FCPA perspective. So I, I want to thank you for uh, kind of grounding me here. And I do believe that I think the number is even higher. I've heard from um, people in the government that there could possibly be as much as 200 active investigations going right now. So I think the, the three re reasons that you quote in the article 
all makes sense. And uh, I'm, I'm sorry I lost my head a couple weeks ago, but uh, I do feel much better with the declinations that have been happening and, uh, you know, the things that we're talking about from a global perspective. I, I think we're, we're still uh, making progress. And I think a little bit later on, we're going to discuss an article from our good friend, uh, Jacqueline Jager at Compliance Week, and we'll uh, pick up that discussion when we hit that article. So next was uh, a couple of articles around uh, Mexico's anti-corruption effort. And the question I have for you, Jay, is it moving forward or not? So you want to take the pro side of that? Well, I think the the pro side is, is that uh, the new law came into effect last week and that uh, it brings significant parity to what Mexico had before in uh, enforcement and it brings it in line with some of the things that we're seeing in other more mature programs and companies. Uh, so that would be the pro side. And uh, where, where would your con be coming from? So my con is actually coming from an article by Juan Montez in the uh, Wall Street Journal. And uh, he notes that uh, the country missed a pivotal deadline on its um, uh, appointing judges to hear uh, corruption cases. More than half of Mexico, Mexico's 32 administrative states have not passed uh, legislation required at the local level. Uh, the authorities in Mexico missed a one-year deadline for adoption of new anti-corruption rules. Um, so we have a law in place, but we don't have any of the uh, the backfill or the the both the uh, procedures, policy, and regulations <coughs> coupled with the people who are enforce it, who will enforce it. So um, there's. Uh, in Texas, I will tell you, much cynicism about um, whether Mexico will join the uh, the modern world and actively um, uh, prosecute uh, corruption and bribery. Um, but there was one really stark number in uh, Juan Montez's piece that struck me, Jay, and I think it really speaks to why the global fight against anti-corruption is so important. And he says that graft cost the Mexican economy some $51 billion a year in lost output. And uh, 44% of all companies in Mexico pay bribes of some kind. And when you have those kinds of numbers, I think it speaks. Now multiply that out across the globe. And that's why I see uh, compliance and anti-corruption is a business issue. And when you have a business issue, you have a law which makes it illegal, but you, you need to have a business response. And we can really explore that a little bit more uh, when we get to Jacqueline's article. But those two numbers really uh, st- uh, stuck stuck me, struck me, Jay. $51 billion in lost output due to graft, and 44% of all companies in Mexico uh, uh, say they pay bribes of some sort. Uh, that didn't even include the U.S. companies or other international companies doing business in Mexico. So uh, uh, perhaps the answer is it's still an open question, but uh, at least a new anti-corruption law went into force, and uh, hopefully the uh, political uh, class in Mexico will move forward with their obligations as well. Maybe we can politely just call it a soft opening. A soft opening. Okay. Okay. So uh, uh, you're correct. Our good friend Jacqueline Jager, uh, my fellow um, uh, columnist at uh, Compliance Week, wrote a very interesting piece this week entitled Ethics and Compliance in the United States Take the Global Stage. 
And she started off by noting correctly the resignations of Walter Schaub from the Office of Government Ethics and Wei Chin from the Department of Justice, um, both of whom uh, publicly criticized uh, President Trump for his questionable and unethical leadership style. And um, Jacqueline posed several questions uh, in her article about uh, uh, some of these issues raised by these resignations and questions that she would at least uh, pose for the ethics and compliance community uh, along the line of what would you do? So what would you do if you work for a CEO who threatened and then fired employees for speaking out? What would you do if the CEO refused to obey the company's policies and procedures on conflicts of interest? What would you do if senior level leadership refused to make full and timely disclosure of a personal interest and beneficial ownership? What would you do if the CEO did not believe in conducting due diligence on the company's assets? Uh, what would you do if the company under an investigation did not have the freedom to conduct an internal investigation because the CEO fired the legal team? What would you do if your best ethics and compliance liaisons within the company, uh, not liaisons, uh, uh, liaisons, uh, were quitting left and right because the CEO had little or uh, no interest in them? And what would you do if, uh, if you were informed the CEO was cutting the compliance budget in half because it wasn't a priority? And where I would, would argue that this needs to go, Jay, is to the business world and to the business response and tie back into the prior point from the uh, amount of graft paid in Mexico and the amount of companies that have paid uh, bribes. So I'm sitting in Houston, Texas, as we record this today on uh, July 21st, energy capital of the world, also the FCPA enforcement capital of the world. More companies in Houston have gone through an FCPA enforcement action than in any single city on earth. Now, the reason is energy. Um, and it started back in 2004, uh, and it's continued up through uh, 2017. But the response of the Houston uh business community, largely in the energy space, but now really in all, all business communities, has been to uh, require, demand, and contractually mandate compliance. So if uh, you want to do business with an Exxon, a uh, Chevron, a Shell, you have to have a compliance program. If you want to do business with a Halliburton, a Slumberjay, a Weatherford, a Baker Hughes, you have to have a compliance program all the way down the chain to literally the $15 million software company that has one piece of software that does one thing for uh, in the energy space. So what I have seen is a business response because businesses recognize it's not in their interest to do business with companies that will engage in bribery and corruption. Um, one, because it's illegal. Two, it is incredibly business inefficient. And three, it speaks to a, a flexible moral standard that uh, is something, frankly, you don't want in your counterparties, the people sitting across from you who are situa situationally ethics, situationally ethical. So um, I really see the responsibility at this point, Jay, under this administration, at this point in our country's history, of the business community to step forward and say, it is in our interests to make business more efficient by fighting bribery and corruption. And we will fight that through requiring that the people we do business with be ethical and uh, have compliance programs in place, and we will self-monitor each other. Now, there will certainly be cynics who will say, uh, that's just uh, so much claptrap from uh, U.S. corporations, but uh, I have seen that work in practice, and I have seen it because business leaders believe that 
It's in their interest to do so because it makes uh, them more efficient and at the end of the day, more profitable. And when you can drive that sort of social good uh, with the business uh, profit motive, I think you've got a, a pretty powerful tool to move forward. And if the U.S. government at the top is going to completely abrogate its responsibilities to lead this effort, uh, I think that the businesses will step forward. It will not be loud. It will not be uh, as um, uh, public as when the Department of Justice settles a case for hundreds of millions of dollars. It will be the day-to-day -day blocking and tackling, slogging of compliance, what uh, our, our colleagues across the globe do on a day-by-day -day basis. So I really see this as an opportunity for the U.S. business community to step up they, uh, they, uh, and do this. And uh, we talked about on the uh, Everything Compliance podcast, Plan C, that businesses are just going to hunker down and, and kind of get through this miasma of, of uh, lack of co uh, governmental leadership right now. But businesses can lead and uh, businesses can do so quietly. They can do so loudly. But my sense is that they will make compliance a priority between the people they were doing business with because they see it in their interest. Uh, I, th I think those are all great points, Tom. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's very inspiring to hear when you frame it that way. And, uh, you know, you don't, you don't need a policeman sitting on the cross street to, to decide whether or not you're going to run a red light. Right. And ethics has always been about what you do when no one else is watching. So not that they're doing it purely for altruistic reasons, but you have really laid out the business case on why corporations will want to do this because number one, they're going to be more efficient. Number two, it hopefully will allow them to make more money. And number three, they're going to uh, have that sterling reputation and they're going to have more importantly, a clean balance sheet. So should they need to, raise capital or should they get involved in an M&A transaction, there should be no fears about uh, what their asset is worth and uh, whether or not that they're buying a company that's clean and will not, um, you know, lead to any success or liability. So I think they're all great points that you make. And with other, um, you know, aspects of the government running at a less than a, a brisk pace. I think other, uh, you know, businesses with regard to other federal statutes are having to uh, step in and fill the same void that we're looking at from a FCPA perspective. Uh, Jay, just a couple of uh, uh, individual um uh, FCPA matters, if I could get these in. Uh, Dimitri Harder was uh, sentenced to five years in jail. He was uh, an individual involved in a bribery of the uh, European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, a fellow there named Andrei Rodjenko. And uh, the, uh, in addition to, to um, an individual prosecution, we had uh, a rare FCPA case involving a public international organization, which is the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. Also, I think the final uh, person from the Haitian telecon, teleco case has pled guilty. Uh, it was an individual named uh, Amadis, Amadis uh, Richters of Brazil. He pled guilty on uh, Monday, I believe, and his sentencing hearing is set for uh, September 20. He had um, uh, 
uh, avoided uh, arrest uh, for multiple years, and he may be looking at a long um, sentence, frankly, based upon uh, his uh, co uh, conspirators, Joel Esquenazi, as most people remember, was sentenced to the longest FCPA uh, sentence uh, for his role in the Haitian telecon case of 15 years. His co-defendant, Carlos Rodriguez, was given a uh, seven and a half year uh, sentence. So uh, two significant individuals uh, pled, pled guilty, one pled guilty and one was sentenced to jail. Uh, so, Jay, uh, that Episode 14 of Everything Compliance was put out yesterday. It was a rollicking good uh, fun uh, podcast recording. Um, Matt Kelly and Jonathan Armstrong were both in Houston. We had piped you in. So um, uh, I split it. It was uh, We had so much fun that we went so long I had to cut it into two different podcasts. So episode 15 will go up next week. But in this uh, episode 14 that's currently on on display, we had a discussion of Jesse Eisenberg's book, The Chicken Shit Club the SFO, UK Bribery Act, and uh, Rolls-Royce Enforcement Action and kind of a five-year retrospective of the uh, Bribery Act. What are some of the differences in DPA practice in the U.S. and the U.K.? We talked about the Trump administration and FCPA enforcement, the European Union's GDPR uh, initiative, uh, Wei Chin's departure from the uh, Justice Department and a public rebuke of Trump, and uh, her interview by Matt Kelly on his Radical Compliance podcast. So uh, check out Everything Compliance uh, podcast. It's available on my site, www.fcpacompliancereport.com. It's available on uh, J.D. Supra, on Libsyn, on uh, iTunes. I think it's on LinkedIn and uh, Facebook if you're interested there. Uh, and here's the – we have to finally got to the big news, Jay, which is the twins are back. As I recall, your wife was posting literally an hour by hour, then 30 minute by 30 minute, then 15 minute by 15 minute countdown to the return of the twins. So what does all this mean or did it mean or what does it continue to mean for the Rosen household? Uh, it, it means that uh, we're, we're back to the new normal and uh, it's good to have little voices and iPads and Kindles running around the house. So uh, believe it or not, last year was the first year the girls went away to camp. And uh, my wife was ex extremely uh, lonely and missed them. We had taken a trip to Las Vegas and after about a day and a half, uh, she was ready to come home and see the girls. And, uh, you know, as there would be poetic justice this year, uh, I think you're really referring more to me about the 15-minute incremental posts <laughs> than Rebecca. And uh, every day I took to uh, changing my uh, Facebook background and uh, profile picture to um, to show the girls. So I'm very happy that they're back. And uh, when I was out shopping earlier this week, um, I already saw that the uh, school supplies are on sale and we're getting ready for back to school. So I know it's only July, but uh, in this week's um, uh, Jay Rosen's blog, I I'm going to talk about uh, the summer doldrums of uh, ethics and compliance and how to keep your sharp yourself sharp over the summer and what you need to do in preparation for uh, going back to school in the fall from an ethics and compliance perspective. Well, with August just around the corner, I think that would be uh, certainly appropriate, Jay. 
Well, Jay, it looks like uh, we were able to get through, uh, I think, all of our topics today. So uh, there really uh, were a lot more, but uh, we had to try to keep it to our normal limit of uh, 30 minutes or so. So uh, could you take us home? Sure. Uh, on behalf of Tom Fox, the compliance evangelist and uh, head of the compliance, what are we calling, what are you calling now, the Compliance Podcast Network? Correct. Yes, and uh, myself, Jay Rose, and Mr. Monitor, we'd like to thank you for spending the last 30 minutes with us looking at the week in the FCPA for the week ending July 21st, 2017. Thanks so much for listening, and have a wonderful weekend. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate this podcast and help get the word out about the only weekly roundup of all things compliance and ethics related. Also, it will help spread the word about the only compliance podcast network in existence. Finally, if you have any questions, please feel free to email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. You can reach Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA, and I hope you'll join us next week where we explore all the top compliance and ethics-related stories for the week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.